This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Young Turks, This Week in Blackness, Moyers and Company, NPR, The David Pakman Show, and a speech by Martin Luther King Jr. And a note of clarification that when you hear some progressives being reflexively anti-corporate and you wonder why they're like that, this is a good example of why. Anytime you incentivize, uh, you know, profit, or if, if you create a profit motive for a prison system, uh, that will give these corporations that run these prisons uh, incentive to pass these tough on crime uh, laws. Like SB 1070 in Arizona is a perfect example of that. The private prison industry was behind that. Well, uh, we have an example in Ohio where the private prison system not only fails to save money, but it's actually terrible for the employees at these prisons and it's terrible for the inmates at these prisons. Recently, there was a report done on the Lake Erie Prison in Ohio, and there is a high turnover rate among its employees because of the violence uh, that occurs uh, within that prison. So uh, according to one former correctional officer, Paul Reynolds, uh, he says, it was common for us to speak about who was going to die first. They were afraid to get sued for any little thing, so management basically tied our hands on everything. Within three months, we lost that prison to those inmates. Um, now, Typically, what happens in private prisons is they want to keep costs low, so they will hire uh, minimal staff. They won't pay them as much as uh, you know correctional officers would make at a public prison um, because they're not represented by unions, um, so they can take advantage of these employees a little more. And they also get rid of certain academic programs for the inmates, so the inmates don't have anything to uh, distract themselves with, and as a result, they become violent. They find ways to smuggle drugs into the prison. Um, the quote continues to say that the state report concludes that one-fifth of personnel at the Lake Erie facility are now leaving in the course of a year, typically replaced by less experienced staff, staff that doesn't really know how to deal with the violence within the prison. Now, that's kind of a disaster in the making because yeah. when it comes to uh, being a prison guard, that's, that's a really difficult job, you know, and granted, they, uh, they get a lot of uh, flack for the job that they do, but it's an important job, and it is incredibly hard, and you're there with a lot of uh, very difficult uh, inmates. So this concept that we privatize the prisons in order to uh, save money for the state, which I know was how this particular private prison corporation sold itself to the state of Ohio. It said, hey, you know, you guys are in a budget crunch. Why don't you sell us your prisons? We'll run them for you. You know, we'll get a little bit of, a, of an interaction going there. You could make some money, take some pressure off, and we'll take care of it. But the problem with going with privatization is that, you know, a good 30% of all of the revenue that would be going to this prison has to then be set aside for shareholders and does not not go to the actual correctional systems, which, you know, we have standards and stuff that are not being met now. Yeah, absolutely. It's a huge problem. Go ahead. Yeah, it's pretty amazing, too. So it says that in this deal, uh, they get the prison, they get 20 years of managing the state's prisoners, and they also get a guaranteed 90% occupancy rate. In other words, if it's not 90% occupancy, yeah. they get paid for 90% occupancy. Oh, okay. I thought it was, well, we have to arrest more people, obviously. Well, that's also the incentive. Me. Yeah, absolutely. No, 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 I understand that. But it should be, I think it seems natural, the occupancy rate should be based on how many crimes are being committed, not on a business deal made 18 years ago. But going back to what I was saying, the private prison system creates a profit motive, and mm -hmm. it means that the more people that get locked away, the more money Corrections Corporation of America, which is the corporation that runs this particular prison, the more money they get to mm -hmm. make. Um, so that's definitely an issue. What were you going to say? Well, what I was going to say is, uh, so the way I would approach this story 
is not is 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 not a way that I think the American public in general would would agree with me. I would say, you know, it's unfortunate that this private private company comes in and they don't really care about taking care of the prisoners. And most Americans would then say, so they're prisoners. You don't have to take good care of them. Um, but I believe that you can care about the care of the prisoners and be entirely selfish at the same time. Imagine the two scenarios. Scenarios. You have the the, the previous scenario where these uh, prisoners are getting educated in different ways. They're doing job training. You know, they don't feel like they're continually going to be stabbed, or they need to deal in drugs while they're there. Or on the opposite side, there's no classes. The only thing you can do is sell drugs to each other and occasionally get into a fight that might leave a few prisoners dead. Those people are not going to be in jail for the rest of your, their life. They're going to get out someday. Which of those two prisoners do you want walking the streets in 20 yes, years? Yes, one that's had rehabilitation and some kind exactly. of education and some sort of chance at being a productive member of society, right. at least a chance at being a productive member of society, versus, as you said, you know, this the, the security has broken down so much at this particular institution that they're talking about having their friends go up to the wall, the prison wall, and toss duffel bags over, build drugs. drugs and cell phones. It's incredible. They've given up. And, you know, uh, some of the former correctional officers are basically saying that this proves that there is no real enforcement uh, within the prison. In fact, uh, from the Huffington Post, uh, I learned some pretty devastating statistics when it comes to these private prisons. Uh, inmate on staff assaults more than quadrupled between 2010 to 2012, according to the inspection report, and inmate on inmate assaults nearly tripled during the same time frame. The number of assaults in 2012 was much higher than the average or comparable prisons in Ohio. Now, um, one thing that I should mention is, you know, not only are they having a hard time employing people who are experienced in this, but, you know, the, the turnover is a huge disaster. Inmate on inmate uh, assault situation has gotten so bad that there are literally inmates within this prison that want to be placed in isolation for 23 hours a day. Yeah. For their that, own safety. For their own safety. Um, and there was a report done um, previously on this prison, and they found out that the inmates, like the conditions were so bad that the inmates didn't have running water or toilets in their cells, so they were defecating in bags, like in plastic bags. And basically the state came in and said, you guys need to fix this problem, and yeah. thankfully they did, but as you can see, there are still a lot of issues. And then one other point I wanted to make in response to you, John, was you said, you know, the majority of people who haven't been placed in these prisons would say, like, who cares? We're not in prison. These inmates obviously did something to get there. But keep in mind that they're trying to um, have a huge influence on our legislation. And they're trying to they're get. Lobbying. They're yes. lobbying. They're trying to get nonviolent people locked away behind bars so they can profit from it. Yeah. Okay, which is why things like the war on drugs continues to happen. It's because you have uh, Cor Corrections Corporation of America and Geo Group pushing to continue criminalizing marijuana use. Another uh, 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 story, this one involving a private prison. Um, so I'm not sure if people are, oh, you know, where there's sort of federal prisons, there's 
uh, county, you know, state prisons, and then there are private prisons, mm-hmm. and they operate like these large conglomerate uh, organizations. They actually, if you look into records, they have very, very strong lobbyists <laughs> across mm-hmm. the country that lobby on their behalf um, to the federal government as well. But anyway, this case, uh, I, I was particularly dumbfounded by um, that an, a, a private prison, actually the nation's largest private prison corporation, in Arizona, participated in a drug raid in the public school system in Arizona. What? What do you mean? So there was a drug raid at a school. Mm-hmm. Uh, three students were arrested for mm-hmm. marijuana possession. Because mm-hmm. marijuana uh, is so dangerous. Right. And this was um, back in October um, at a high school in Arizona. And participating in the drug raid, besides, you know, the, the, the officers, uh, of that particular area, were officers from the private prison. Was there a reason? And their why response, that was the, the, their response, um, uh, for this for-profit prison participating in a high school <laughs> drug suite <laughs> is, you know, the, the, uh, representatives there in Arizona say, oh, we work pretty closely with all surrounding agencies, whatever kind of law enforcement they are be they police, immigration, naturalization, or prison systems, is pretty regular. Why would a private prison be involved in a drug raid in a public school? <laughs> not sure, but, I mean, is I'm not sure that it's a, uh, it's, it's, is that just a terrible thing? I mean. Well, I mean, some, some people are arguing sort of, uh, I know we've talked about on the show before, um, the Justice Department right now is suing Mississippi. You know, this is another state, but suing Mississippi about their school to prison pipeline, that they have really clear uh, um, uh, ways that the state government and the public education system is basically kids that are identified or um, labeled as troublemakers um, in school are being um, targeted and eventually wind up in the prison system or the criminal justice system in Mississippi. Right. And so having that going on, I'm sure Mississippi isn't the only state state or Mm -hmm. their school system isn't the only system that's sort of doing these kinds of things. We've talked about this in um, as a whole across the country, that why would a private prison (laughs) whose job and I guess they make their money in the more prisoners we have in our prison system, the more money we make would be involved in a drug raid in a public school system with teenagers. So, oh, so your argument is that um, uh, th- that they had the incentive to uh, make sure that people were arrested, even mm-hmm. if, even if maybe they weren't, they didn't need to be arrested. Exactly. Hmm. Isn't this a slippery slope? I How mean, it we... leads to them. I mean, it leads to, like you said, this sort of school to prison pipeline. Yeah. Mm. The ability for non police officers to come and pluck you up off the street because you're doing something that. that See, in my mind, at first I was, I was thinking about like maybe a small town. They don't have that big of a police uh, 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 press uh, station or uh, department, and so in, in certain situations, if they need, if they, if it's uh, they need more manpower to reach out to that space. But I can uh, your your argument uh, that there is an incentive. Um, it, I can I, I see it off the top of my head. I would hope that I would I you would, would hope, hope that what? life that we aren't. We haven't reached that point where people would literally 
try to put people in prison more when they go like it's one thing what? do you not live in america i do i do yeah, we, li- we like we like uh, we like our minor offenders in prison sir i do, uh... and not to mention that i I could see maybe if the, the this private company has a track record of well we want to reduce the amount of minors that are in the you know in the prison system um, and sort of our giving back kind of program or something or a scared straight thing or whatever. Not to mention that one this this private prison one of the nation's largest has serious violations across the country in the prisons that they operate over 157 serious security failings in their facilities. Right. Um, they are right now being sued in Idaho that the uh, company partnered with violent gangs <laughs> and at another facility, they're being sued um, by the inmates because of a riot where they and they rioted because of poor treatment by the company. So like this now you're partnering with a company that has a horrible track record record nationally to do a drug raid in a public school. Okay. Doesn't make sense. What story you just told me? You told me it was Wisconsin. Same. It's, 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 it, okay. Because I feel like I watch too many movies, but I'm thinking that a, a, a group of people that exists between the prisons, the police, and everyone else is just dicey. Because the cops look the other way, and they're not privy to the same rules that police officers are, and they're trying to bring people into a prison that makes them money. That just, I mean, that doesn't even sound reasonable at all. I'm, like I said, I may, I may watch too many movies. There ain't no reason things are this way It's how they always been and they intend to stay I can't explain why we live this way We do it every day How would you like to be able to read books and periodicals without the need for tree-killing paper, the actual ability to read, or having to pay a giant corporation for the pleasure? I sure would, but I don't think that exists. Two out of three ain't bad, though, because Audible, an Amazon company, is just such a giant corporation that can make these other wishes a reality. By signing up at audiblepodcast.com slash best, you'll receive a free audiobook of your choice, yours to keep even if you cancel within the 14-day free trial. That's audiblepodcast.com slash best to take something for nothing from a company who obviously didn't write the copy for this advertisement. So Corrections Corporation of America, the country's largest for-profit prison company, is admitting that in Ohio they falsified records to make it seem like uh, they were employing staff for longer hours when they really weren't. Now the reason why they were doing that is because they have a contract with the state. The taxpayers actually end up paying uh, corporate, uh, Corrections Corporation of America because even though it's a private prison company, the state pays for it anyway because they're supposed to save the state money. But no, they're lying about the number of hours their employees are working and as a result, taxpayers are paying them money for absolutely nothing. Yeah, no, it's a great idea to privatize prisons uh, because they'll really want to make sure that the prisoners are rehabilitated and put out back to society. Oh, no, they won't. They'll want to make sure, of course, they return to prison so they can make more profit. They'll have an incentive to, uh, you know, lard up the books and waste and fraud and abuse. And then, by the way, you can't fire them, right? Like, if somebody did that, a warden did that, or a worker in a public prison did that, easy. You fire them. Yep. There's a consequence, right? Now, you can't get inside the 
private corporations things and say, okay, fire that guy and this guy. And they might not renew their contract, but oftentimes the reason they got the contract in the first place is because they bought the politicians. So the politician is going to renew it anyway because all they want is their donor check. Yeah. So they don't give a damn. So this is, uh, you know, a particular prison in Idaho, and uh, it's like one of the largest prisons in Idaho, and they received a $29 million contract that is set to expire uh, in 2014. How many people in Idaho are in prison? It's like 175 people in the whole state. $29 million to run a prison. Corrections Corporation of America will try to imprison every single one of them because that means money in their pocket. Correction Corporation of America. How much does it sound like it's out of a movie or a novel? I mean, it's like in, a, it's in 1984. I, I know I, we say it too often, but we're living in 1984. Yeah. Again, they picked somebody picked up the book and thought, "Man, I think we could do that." Right? Let's let's give it a shot. Let's uh, let's play it out for a, a second. Uh, are my glasses growing on you at all? A little, a little bit. Uh, a little bit. <laughs> uh, um, so, um, what about now? Totally. <laughs> okay. Um, like, so what's the ultimate punishment in in a, in a prison? Life sentence, solitary confinement, death penalty. Death penalty, right? Right. So, how is it that we're comfortable as a society turning over control of the prisons? to uh, private corporations to do the state's work because it saves a little bit of money. Uh, which, by the way, of course, it doesn't. Right, but we under some machination of fudging numbers, it seems to save a little bit of money very briefly. Um, when there are other, obviously, very key ways to save money, like stop sending guys with dope to prison and then look, all of a sudden it would save less money. But forget mm -hmm. that. So we're, com we're comfortable with the CCA and other private prison groups running these prisons. But you know, as a society, at least at this point, maybe we will in 10 or 15 years, we are not comfortable with that private corporation carrying out the death penalty. We're not going right. to allow a private group of individuals to, you get to kill this guy now. But it's the same thing. If we're willing to let them do this, then we ought to be willing to let them execute people. But we never that's, would. Okay, so that's a great point, and I slightly disagree. So it's a great point in that when we take away somebody's liberty, it's other than the death penalty, you're right, it's as serious as it gets. And how we treat them while we're taking away their liberty is also as serious as it gets, because they get to have leeway on, on whether they're going to do solitary confinement or not. Solitary confinement often winds up, you know, if you do it long enough, is torture. Right? No, no judge sentences anybody to solitary confinement. It's all done inside the prison system. That's right. And so giving them, these private corporations, like the power over our lives, our freedom, our liberties, etc., is such a miscarriage of justice and and yeah. what the government is supposed to do in protecting its citizens yeah. that it's it's so unconscionable but Ben the part I slightly disagree with you is I think at some point we will let them kill people uh, may, I mean that may be I said maybe we will in 10 or 15 years so I, I hope not I think that right now the idea that the CCA would get to execute people would offend the sensibility of most Americans. Well, let, that, been, let that frog boil just a little longer, and yeah. we'll see. And yeah. they've been very successful in convincing people that, you know, the for-profit prison system makes a lot of sense. Because, you know, even though it makes absolutely no sense, there's like this very anti-union like mindset in the country right now and when it comes to for-profit prisons they don't have union jobs so that's the way that they sell it to the american people like oh look at these public prisons right they have all these union workers and it's all waste but we're gonna get rid of that and we're gonna save the money but the reason why this whole audit came about in the first place is because inmates contacted the aclu because there was a lot of violence within the prison because they were understaffed okay they were understaffed but the logs uh, the pay logs indicated that they were over 
tour staff. They had like a lot of people, a lot of prison guards there. And that wasn't the case. Two, I mean, there's a million pieces of corruption within the pro private prison system. Two more real quick, though. Sometimes they understaff it, so what they do is they wind up cutting deals with the gangs within the prisons. So the wardens will say, okay, I will reward the gangs for keeping order. Mm -hmm. So instead of punishing the gangs, they reward them, okay? It's because they don't care. All they care about is the profit. Who cares they're a gang? Who cares they killed somebody in prison? Who cares they raped someone? I don't care. Where's the money, Lebowski? Mm -hmm. Okay. And uh, there was one other piece of corruption that I forgot. But there's, like I said, there's a million with these. Yeah. Percentage of uh, American workers uh, in a oh, right. private American workers in a union. You know the percentage? I have no About idea. 7%. I yeah, it's under 7%. So, yeah. like, I just, just remember when they're, like, hammering us, like, unions, unions, unions. Less than 7% of workers. The number is just over 10% if you include public. So the other piece of corruption is what they do is, like, sometimes they'll take over a public prison and then they'll say, okay, now it's private, great. So what do they do? They fire everybody and they say, okay, now we're going to hire you back, but at less wages. Ha yeah. ha, sad day for you. Plus, we're not, your pension, you know, that's no more pensions for you and no more health care for you. you. The government has to pick that up. Yep. So then they say, but that costs more, actually, right? Oh, who cares? It's not under my accounting. Then I turn around and I say to you, hey, I ran the prison for less. Now, the government overall paid more because they had to pick up the pension and the health care, mm -hmm. et cetera, of those workers. But ha-ha. And why does it work? It should never work under any circumstance because people believe what they want to believe. And if you give uh, this argument to a politician after you gave him a $10,000 check, oh, he wants it. to believe it's cheaper. If I listen long enough to you, I'll find a way to believe that it's all true Knowing that you lied straight-faced while I cried Still I look to find a reason to believe The next time you say the Pledge of Allegiance I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Remember, it's a lie, a whopper of a lie. We coax it from the mouths of babes for the same reason our politicians wear those flag pins in their lapels. It makes the hypocrisy go down easier, the way aspirin helps a headache go away. Justice for all is a mouthwash for the morning after Governor Bill Clinton took time off from his presidential campaign to fly back to Arkansas to oversee execution of a fellow who was mentally deficient. Justice for all is a breath mint Governor George W. Bush popped into his mouth after that poor Bible-believing Christian pleaded vainly for mercy before they strapped her down to die in the anteroom of heaven known as the Huntsville State Prison. Justice for All is a line item in the budget, sequestered now by the Paul Ryans of Congress and the fix-the-debt gang of plutocratic CEOs who, with a wink-wink from our president, claim, oh, we can't afford that. Of the $146 billion spent every year on criminal justice in this country, only 2 to 3 percent goes to defend the poor. Of 97 countries, we rank 68th in access to and affordability of civil legal service. No, we can't afford it. But just a decade ago, we started shelling out $2.2 trillion for a war in Iraq born of fraud. We can't afford it, while Dick Cheney's old outfit, Halliburton, 
raked in $40 billion worth of contracts because of that war. We can't afford it. While the State Department doles out $3 billion over five years in private security contracts to protect its gargantuan new embassy in Baghdad. We can't afford it in this golden age of corporate profits when companies pay below zero in taxes while hauling in tax breaks from Congress worth millions upon millions of dollars. And while, as we speak, the powerful business roundtable ratchets up a costly advertising campaign to cut corporate taxes even more. We can't afford to defend the poor. There have been 142 exonerations of inmates in the United States who were on death row. 142, and this is since 1970. Um, and so Amnesty International realizes that this is a serious issue because innocent people are being sentenced to the death penalty. Uh, so they put out this very, very impressive ad campaign. And what they did is they took photos, and these are, um, you know, uh, replicas of what innocent inmates ate for their last meal before being executed. So let's look at the first one. So this was uh, Claude Jones's last meal. He was executed in 2000. He was proved to be innocent in 2010. Now, it's obviously an incredibly serious story, but as I look at that last meal, I think he was playing it right. That is a lot of eggs, right? And no, like I love eggs. I love sunny side up eggs. And I would never have that many. That's crazy, right? Unless it's your last meal, in which case, what difference does it make? The only thing is I would have added bacon. Now, getting back to the seriousness of the story, 142 killed uh, when they were innocent. That's why I switched on the death penalty. Look, I'm, you know, I don't know if you want to call me conservative, Neanderthal, whatever in that sense, but I believe in justice, and I think part of justice is somebody kills someone you love, I don't get why they should get to keep on living. But the reason I switched is we're killing the wrong people. So if you care about justice and you're killing the wrong people, uh, well, that's a double whammy. Uh, it's injustice on top of injustice. So nobody in their right mind should be in favor of the death penalty. And the death penalty is now obviously sinking in popularity in America, not because fundamentally or philosophically or ideologically you should be opposed to it, but you should be opposed to it in practice. That's why I love these pictures, because it shows you, it makes you think about the guy eating that meal, eating yes. all those eggs. And, it, and get into his mind for a second. It, what he must have been thinking in that last I'm meal. I'm about to die for some crime that I did not commit. And you have to come to terms with that. And there have been cases of uh, death row inmates who have been exonerated. And, of course, they get interviewed by the media. And they talk about what it's like to accept it and just kind of move on and know that, all right, well, it's the end for me. Um, and then, uh, you know, finally they get proven innocent because of wonderful organizations like the Innocence Project. You know, they do the DNA testing, they find out, no, this person is actually not guilty, and of course it's the best day of their lives. Um, but you have to come to terms with it, because otherwise you're going to be terrified till the moment you die. And, and by the way, if you're a believer in the death penalty, and we killed the wrong 142 people, should we put to death the people who accident? not, I mean, I don't know if it's accidental, but they killed them. 
They killed him, right? Well, also the prosecutor. Mind, the yes. prosecutor. Yes. Should we put them to death? I mean, there are cases where the prosecutors, uh, or, or even even the the person, the lawyer, the public defender who is trying to make a case uh, in favor of their innocence, right, will plant evidence. Like we've done stories like that, right, mm -hmm. where where they will find evidence. And they'll they'll hide it so the person will get convicted because they just want the case to move on. They just want to convict because they want to win. They want to win. win. Yeah. I'd put that guy in jail. But if you're a believer in the death penalty, then you do, you know, kill the prosecutor. And then if you get that wrong, do you kill the prosecutor who killed the prosecutor? See, this is madness. Yeah. So and and they bring it to life here with these pictures. And you know, as you look through them, you think, oh well, that guy likes steak and this guy liked. All right. So this is David Spence's last meal. He was executed in 1997. He was presumed innocent uh, in 2000. And I, it makes it personalized exactly. Look, I like chicken wings. I like coke. I mean, what meal would I have eaten, right? And then you're in his shoes and knowing that they were innocent. Uh, there's one more, uh, Ruben Cantus. It, this last meal uh, was given to him before he was executed in 1993. He was proved, he was proven innocent in 2010. Uh, how it's can you just, be in favor of it? It doesn't make any sense. If you were absolutely certain we were killing the right guys, then it's an interesting question. But we're absolutely certain that we're not absolutely certain. We're positive that we've killed the wrong guys and we probably will again. The weight of every conversation ends and someone wondering if they were in the wrong. Take one more honest look, I would apologize, I'm sure. Seems nothing ends in certainty these days. Maryland is about to become the 18th state to abolish the death penalty. A bill has passed the state Senate and is expected to pass the House easily. It has the governor's ardent support. The strongest advocate to end the death penalty in Maryland is Kirk Bloodsworth. In 1985, he was convicted of murder in that state and sentenced to death. Almost 10 years later, he walked out of prison, becoming the first person in the U.S. to be sentenced to death row and then exonerated by DNA evidence. NPR's Margot Adler reports. When you meet Kirk Bloodsworth, he comes across as the kind of guy you might want to go for a beer with, large, amiable, Working class, you might think, maybe a crab fisherman, something he loves to do, by the way. And when he speaks to you in person about his experiences, he's calm. What do you do with your life after spending almost a decade in prison and two years on death row? What do you do with the trauma? Bloodsworth says he, like most exonerees, suffered from a lot of mental issues. His catharsis, he says, has been public speaking. So I've traveled the, the length and breadth of this nation and beyond to tell people my story. Bloodsworth was reviled, considered a monster, because he was convicted of the brutal rape and murder of a young girl. When he tells his story to an audience like this group of law students at Temple University, the students are riveted. And the gavel came down on my life, and the sentence was death. The courtroom erupted in applause. They partied until 2 o'clock in the morning to my execution. Except there was one problem. I was an innocent man. Bloodsworth says speaking in public is better than forking out hundreds of dollars for a psychiatrist. 
His story has become well-known. Misidentification by a neighbor who saw his sketch on TV, then almost a decade later DNA evidence that exonerated him that was hidden away in a closet and found almost by accident. Bloodsworth was given $300,000 by the state of Maryland upon his release. Most exonerees are not so lucky, says David Love, the executive director of Witness to Innocence. He says, you're free, life is good, you have no problems. But many exonerees get no money or services. Many people who are exonerated face PTSD because what they experienced in prison was in fact a form of torture, solitary confinement, in some cases 23 hours a day, not able to have physical contact with people. Going through that for years and years, you can't help but have a permanent damage as a result of that. Alcoholism, drug abuse, homelessness. Bloodsworth says he still can't escape the stigma. As he told the Temple University law students, let's say you go out on a date. girl says, oh, it's really nice. Where have you been for the last nine years? What do you say to that? <laughs> oh, well, I was in prison. I, they said I killed somebody. It was a brutal crime, but I didn't do it, and I got DNA about it. Can you pass me the salt? <laughs> it's really tough. He was 22 when he was convicted. He came out of prison when he was 31. But his life had stopped when he went in, and all his friends had gone to college, were married, had kids. I didn't even know how to f- to uh, balance a checkbook. Witness to Innocence is 10 years old. Membership is limited to death row exonerees. There are 142. About 50 have actually joined. Bloodsworth became advocacy director a little over three months ago. The organization's mission is to provide a support network for exonerated death row survivors and their family members, to give support, help with social service issues, and have annual gatherings where exonerees exchange stories and talk about the issues affecting their lives. Witness to Innocence is also pushing for federal compensation for those exonerated from death row. And one of their many missions is working for the repeal of the death penalty. In Maryland, Bloodsworth has been front and center of this battle. The numbers suggest that the death penalty is not a deterrent and it does not work. That's Governor Martin O'Malley testifying before a Maryland Senate panel. He and other opponents gave familiar moral arguments that the death penalty is inconsistent with the principles that define American character. Bloodsworth gave a very different kind of argument. Human beings are not perfect, he said. The prosecutor in my case was very smart. The judges in both trials were very smart. The homicide detectives were smart and the jurors were concerned citizens. But in the end, every single person involved in the state of Maryland versus Kirk Noble Bloodsworth was dead wrong. A system run by human beings cannot be foolproof, says Bloodsworth, and even the most well-intentioned can make mistakes. And a mistake is an unjustified death. I want to kill the thing that almost killed me, he says, me and 141 other people. Margot Adler, NPR News. Here at Best of the Left, supporting the good works of others is our entire reason for existence. Since the beginning of 2006, I've been making this show to highlight what I consider to be some of the best of the truly liberal media. Now I'm working on several ways to promote the best progressive activism around. Ruminate for a moment on whether you enjoy this show or consider its goals to be worthwhile, and if you do, please consider supporting this work by becoming a member for as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year at the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. It's the donations of members that allow the show to continue and continue to improve. Thanks so much for your support. Hey.
Right. Well, the state of Georgia has been very quick to try and overturn a stay of the execution of Warren Hill, an intellectually disabled inmate. And that's for um, a pretty damn awful reason. According to the Guardian, it's because Georgia confirmed to the Guardian that its entire supply of pentobarbital expires on March 1st. The expiration date leaves the state in a quandary. It still has 93 men and one woman on death row, including Hill, but with no obvious means by which to execute them. Anti-death penalty campaigners are scathing about the unseemly haste with which Georgia appears to be rushing to beat the deadline. This highlights the nastiness of the process that the AG should be racing to kill prisoners ahead of the, an expiration date, said Tara Totonchi, director of the Southern Center of Human Rights. So basically, they have to kill this man before the drugs used for the lethal injection expire because a man's life is like a bowl of cereal. We need 90 plus other people to make sure we run them through there yes. too. This is disgusting. Maybe we need to, if, maybe they're, they're starting to line up exactly how much of their, what is it, uh, pentobarbital, right? Mm -hmm. How much of that is left? And be like, oh shit, we need to arrest like 17 more people. Get rid of all of it. Yeah, this we got to push that through too. Waste not want. So, so let's explain a little bit what's happening here. So they have uh, this drug that they use. Uh, it's a drug cocktail that they use to uh, execute people, and that's actually the only way the state's allowed to execute people under their own laws. Mm -hmm. um, and and uh, if they don't have this drug, then they cannot execute people, and they have people on death row who need to be executed, but they can't be executed. So what to do? Well, they can just buy more drugs, right? Except the drug companies are, you know what? We don't want to help you guys execute people because that's fucked up and we don't want any part of it. And good for them, okay? So one of the few well, many drug companies do a lot of good things. Mm -hmm. They also do some bad things, but I'm with them on this one. And, um, you know, this death penalty issue is something that's very near and dear to my heart. Um, you know, I worked. Yeah, I worked to get that uh, Prop 34 passed in California that would ban the death penalty and replace it with um, with life in prison without parole. And, and the reason why I feel so strongly about it is that because I was, I'm a former prosecutor. I see I see how the system works, and uh, it's not perfect. It's far far from perfect. And um, there are so many people who are put on death row that you know through a lot of luck and a lot of hard work were exonerated later. And if we had executed them, they'd be dead. Would have executed dead people. I mean, I mean, innocent people. And uh, what happens is every year we find out, oh, so-and-so who's on death row or so-and-so who's been in prison for decades turns out totally innocent. So I'm not comfortable rushing to execute people to save a few dollars on drugs that are sitting there in the closet that expire in a few days. I didn't, I mean, it's crazy. I didn't specifically read that they're looking to save a few dollars. So I'm assuming that's part of the case, but mm -hmm. it just might be because they're like, well, it's about to expire. Yeah. We've had these people living for a while. Let's hurry up because, uh, by the way, Kevin the Mondeth were for this long anyway. Um, the, la the last guy they killed was on since 95 for killing two uh, college students. They d they, he was one of the ones they rushed through. So keeping him on for that long has cost you tons more anyway. Just the whole system itself. Yeah, is, the death penalty is, is, is so much more expensive uh, than just keeping them in prison forever. And whenever we do any kind of death penalty story um, here at TYT, the YouTube comments, uh, Idiots write things like, oh, you know, why does death penalty cost so much? A bullet costs a dollar. Bang, he's dead. Okay, if you say those kind of things, um, you're an idiot. Sorry, you're just an idiot. Um, if, if you really believe that's true. Uh, and you're a bad person. I mean, that's not the way our justice system works. And it, that's not the way it should work. Uh, we need to make sure that the people that we are, are, are punishing 
are actually the ones who did the crime. And if you don't care, you just want to run, run them through and just put a bullet in people's head, well, you're a bad guy. Because so, that's, you know, And it's not a funny joke, it's stupid. Because as you know, as we yeah. kill more and more people, the murder rate is it's dropping because It's changing of it. everything for the better. Yeah, Except not. Because an intellectually disabled man is on death row now that's trying to push through. That's going to change anyone else who's out on the streets and thinking about possibly murdering someone or not. I mean, look, there there's, there's so many things wrong with the death penalty. I mean, you know, the, the, the wrongly convicted. Um, and then, you know, even the ones who are correctly convicted. So, I mean, this happens quite often. So let's say the two of us went and murdered someone. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I copped a plea with the cops before you copped one. Well, you're going to get the death penalty and I'm going to get a lesser sentence, even if I'm the shooter. Because we're in it together. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, is that fair? I don't think that's fair. <laughs> they don't um, care. It's, they don't care. Yeah, they don't it's a, care. It's yeah. numbers. So. It's turning over numbers. As so, we can see in this As case we can too. see, yeah. 93 men and one woman and being Georgia. pushed to the door. Yeah, I mean, this is... Uh, are you not ashamed of yourself? I mean, this is how you want to administer your death penalty. You want to rush through and use the drugs before they expire. And uh, it's, it's unbelievable to me. What a cry in shame, a cry in shame, what we became. Murdered my throat, screaming bloody all night. Hit him with the book and how he crumbles. Oh, you should have seen how the arches tumble. They're golden no more, now I'm smiling in my blood. I'm caught in a I'm going to heaven I'm standing on trial And it's painted on canvas An eternal testament To how we are so animalistic Let's talk about a prison story That is uh, uh, some, uh, some, somewhat uh, at the top of the list Of the prison stories we've covered A neglected prisoner has been awarded $15.5 million Down from the $22 million That he was initially awarded by a jury after serving 22 months in solitary confinement, his name is Stephen Slevin. He spent 22 months in solitary at a New Mexico jail. During the time, his mental health deteriorated. Fungus grew on his skin. He was forced to pull his own tooth after being denied access to a dentist. And the recent settlement has him receiving $15.5 million from Do uh, Donna Anna County. Initially, $22 million, as I mentioned, and that was appealed, and eventually the, the number settled on was $15.5 His attorney, Matt Coit, says his client's mental health has been severely compromised from the time he was in that facility. That continues to be the same. No amount of money will bring back what they took away from him. So he developed bed sores during the 22 months. He lost 50 pounds. This started back in 2005. He was arrested on suspicion of driving under the influence and stealing a, a car, which he says he borrowed from a friend. He was never brought before a judge never convicted of any crime. And he wrote letters. He begged for help with his depression. The before and after photos, which we have up here for our television audience, certainly are indicative, Lewis, of, of uh, at least to some extent of what was going on there. And the question to me is, how did no one know this was happening? People are presumably feeding him three times a day. How did no one notice this? And therefore, who is complicit? And why has no one been punished? Good question. I don't know. It sounds like the taxpayers are being punished. Right. I mean, $15.5 million settlement, that's great. 
that's essentially taxpayer money. Nobody who made the call to keep him in there, nobody who neglected or denied him the treatment he clearly needed is being punished as far as we currently know. Incredibly disturbing story. Yeah. Uh, I wonder I wonder how many people out there are this is happening to right now. I mean, this can't be the only guy. The other question, which is which I have is, according to Jess Williams, which is Donna Anna County's public information director, Jess Williams told NBC News that the jail is making an effort to improve the way it treats prisoners with mental illness. Wait a second. So, number one, I guess by mental illness, they're talking about depression. Um, if this individual didn't have a mental illness issue, so-called mental illness issue, then the way he was treated was okay. Why are they only focusing on how they treat patients with mental illness? It's a really weird response, and I guess it's just kind of like a get something on the record, which means almost nothing, but so we show up with more than a no comment. Right. Pretty shocking story. Yeah, well, it really is. They're creating the mental illness, and then they want to be able to treat it. Well, that's the thing. The, we know from talking to a number of experts on the show and research we've done that the effect of solitary confinement on the mental health of prisoners often is solely responsible for a mental illness issue. Uh, PTSD is not out of the question, from what I've read, for somebody who is kept in these kinds of conditions. Right. The prison system is creating mental illness. I don't think it's news to too many people. No, I don't think so. Back in 2005, a man by the name of Stephen Slevin uh, was arrested for a DUI. Now, uh, he was supposed to stand trial, but he never did stand trial. In fact, uh, they put him in solitary confinement because uh, other inmates described him as suicidal. And they basically left him there for two years. Jesus. Now, um, thankfully, uh, this story, uh, you know, did get a little attention, and uh, the courts did find about find out about this. And originally, a jury had awarded him twenty-two million dollars for the neglect, and it was severe neglect, as you can see in that picture. That's his booking photo, right? We think, and uh, and that's him after basically twenty-two months. Well, I think that's a, a great photo because of how telling it is. Because on the left-hand side, you see a guy that you see anywhere. He's a normal guy that you see down the street. On the right-hand side, you've dehumanized him. Mm -hmm. You know, all the hair, and he's lost the weight, and he seems like a prisoner, like you'd see in a movie, mm -hmm. and the kind of prisoner you can do anything to. It's okay, because he's not Bob down the street. He's not the guy you'd run into at Sizzler. He's just that animal in the corner. And who made him that animal? You did. Yeah. Um, according to reports, he was left in a cell for months at a time, had untreated dental problems, and toenails that grew so long they curled under his feet. He took oh. out his own tooth. Oh, my God. He was God. crying out, I'm in such pain, I need to see a dentist. He took his own tooth yeah. out. He still, the tooth is still out now, like I saw the video of him today or this week when they made the settlement. We actually have the video of him talking about that. We'll show it to you in just a second, but I want to tell you more about the settlement. So um, uh, originally a jury had awarded him $22 million. However, uh, uh, Donia Anna County in New Mexico appealed and they got that number down to $15.5 million, which is still a significant amount of money. It's the largest ever civil rights settlement in the country. 
Well, he, 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 I think he richly deserves it. You don't understand. Two years of solitary confinement, man, it, it's hard not to go mental, let alone the pain of the dental and all the other things and being treated like an animal. Two years, you'll lose your mind, man. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't do that for any price. He says that, you know, when you're in solitary confinement, they, they let you go outside for an hour a day, but sometimes, not sometimes, quite often, that wouldn't even happen. He would just be locked in that small cell by himself day after day after day. And this is for a DUI, by the way. They this just is, forgot about it. By the way, it's for nothing. He was never convicted. There was no trial. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's so outrageous. Yeah. Now, but think about this, too. Now, they didn't have Bradley Manning grow out the beard and the toenails, etc. But Bradley Manning, before he was even charged, just like this guy, in solitary confinement for nine months. And beyond this, they would strip him down naked, they would do all sorts of demeaning things to him on purpose, turn on the lights at night so he couldn't sleep, take away his blanket, etc. And for that, he got a, not only did he not get any settlement, He's still on trial and might get a life sentence, uh, possibly. Cer certainly, even on the things he's admitted to, he can get 20 years. You know what they did? They knocked off about 122 days from his term. Why isn't he getting $15.5 million? Why isn't he free to go? Yeah. Let's this see. guy didn't even see a lawyer. Yeah. I mean, he didn't, nothing happened. I mean, they literally forgot about it. But they do point out that over the last uh, seven years, they've made significant improvements. Well, you wouldn't need to make significant improvements to approve that. You would just need to have some way of checking on people on a daily basis to see whether they're supposed to be in court. Yeah, and the other thing that makes me mad about this is, again, if he was a powerful guy, he wouldn't sit for two hours in solitary confinement. But if you're a regular guy, they just forget about you in solitary confinement for two years. And nobody bothers to check, hey, why are we treating this man like an animal, like a savage? Yeah. Why are we destroying this guy's life? Why, why won't we help him when he's screaming in agony over his dental pain? Have you ever had a tooth that's yes, it's giving you that kind of pain? It's the worst pain. Look, I handle pain really well. Okay, I like getting in fights. Okay, I've gotten punched in the face many times and didn't mind. That dental pain is the worst in the world, okay? And you're going to let that guy scream in the corner like that? But he's not the animal. You're the animal. So $15.5 at least, if you ask me. So he did speak to CNN after he got the $15.5 million uh, ruling. And uh, let's take a look at what he had to say. Walking by me every day, watching me deteriorate day after day after day. And did nothing nothing at all to get me any help. I wanted people to know that the people of the Doniana County Jail <clears throat> that are doing things like this to people and getting away with it. So it reminds me of course of the Zimbardo experiment at Stanford. And mm -hmm. the, and what they did was they took Stanford students, if you don't know about this, this is one of the greatest experiments of all time, but it, they had to end it because it immediately went so badly in terms of what wound up happening. Stanford students, really well educated, made half of them prisoners, half of them guards. And immediately the prisoners became, you know, were humiliated and embarrassed and the guards became savages in terms of how they... Uh, treated the others and it got so out of hand Professor Zimbardo had to end the experiment early and this is what it does and we have to be aware of it right it happens in even the best circumstances the most educated kids who meant to do well etc they would degrade and humiliate their cl classmates even though it was in the middle of an experiment they immediately got into the roles and that's what happens it makes savages not out of the people who are in prison but out of the imprisoners it, Martin Luther King used to talk about in the civil rights era, 
We are here to set not just us free, but we're here to set the, our oppressors free. Because it makes them inhumane. It makes them unhuman. And we want to get them back to humanity and morality. And our job is to set everyone free. And so we've got to be incredibly careful about how we imprison people. Because the natural tendency of the imprisoner is to become an animal and to treat other human beings savagely like this. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, in this case, we certainly didn't do that. And I'm glad they got punished for it. And, and, and we need to set an example here so they never do it again. And I tried to do everything I knew. Don't seem fair, cause look where you left me. This morning I would like to use as a subject from which to preach the drum major instinct. The drum major instinct. An instinct. It's a kind of drum major instinct. A desire to be out front. A desire to lead the parade, a desire to be first. It is something that runs the whole gamut of life. So before we condemn them, let us see that we all have the drum major instinct. We all want to be important to surpass others, to achieve distinction, to lead the parade. And you know, we begin early to ask life to put us first. Our first cry as a baby was a bid for attention. And all through childhood, the drum major impulse or instinct is a major obsession. Children ask life to grant them first place. They are a little bundle of ego. They have innately the drum major instinct. Now in adult life we still have it and we really never get by it. We like to do something good, and you know, we like to be praised for it. Now, if you don't believe that, you just go on living life, and you will discover very soon that you like to be praised. Everybody likes it as a matter of fact. And somehow this warm glow we feel when we are praised or when... Our name is in print, is something of the vitamin A to our ego. Nobody is unhappy when they are praised, even if they know they don't deserve it. 
and even if they don't believe it. The only unhappy people about praise is when that praise is going too much towards somebody else. But everybody likes to be praised because of this real drum major instinct. Do you know that a lot of the race problem grows out of the drum major instinct? A need that some people have to feel superior. A need that some people have to feel that they are first and to feel that their white skin ordained them to be first. They have said over and over again, in ways that we see with our own eyes. In fact, not too long ago, a man down in Mississippi said that God was a charter member of the White Citizens Council. And so, God being the charter member means that everybody who's in that has a, a kind of divinity, a kind of superiority. Think of what has happened in historism as a result this perverted use of the drum major instinct led to the most tragic prejudice, the most tragic expressions of man's inhumanity to man. And not only does this thing go into the racial struggle, goes into the struggle between nations. And I would submit to you this morning that what is wrong in the world today is that the nations of the world are engaged in a bitter, colossal contest for supremacy. And if something doesn't happen to stop this trend, I'm sorely afraid that we won't be here to talk about Jesus Christ and about God and about brotherhood too many more years. Somebody doesn't bring an end to this suicidal thrust that we see in the world today. None of us are going to be around because somebody's going to make the mistake through our senseless blunderings of dropping a nuclear bomb somewhere and then another one is going to drop and don't let anybody fool you. This can happen within a matter of seconds. They have 20 megaton bombs in Russia right now that can destroy a city as big as New York in three seconds with everybody wiped away in every building. And we can do the same thing to Russia and China. But this is why we are drifting, and we are drifting there. Because nations are caught up with the drum major instinct. I must be first. I must be supreme. Our nation must rule the world. I am sad to say that the nation in which we live is the supreme culprit. I'm going to continue to say it to America. Because I love this country too much to see the drift that it has taken. God didn't call America to do what she's doing in the world now. God didn't call America to engage in a senseless, unjust war as a war in Vietnam. And we are criminals in that war. We've committed more war crimes almost than any nation in the world. And I'm going to continue to say it. And we won't stop it because of our pride and our arrogance as a nation. But God has a way of even putting nations in that place. God that I worship has 
has a way of saying, don't play with me. He has a way of saying, he's the God of the Old Testament used to say. The Hebrews, don't play with me, Israel. Don't play with me, Babylon. Be still and know that I'm God. If you don't stop your reckless course, I'll rise up and break the backbone of your power. And that can happen to America. This instinct. It's a good instinct if you use it right. It's a good instinct if you don't distort it and pervert it. Don't give it up. Keep feeling the need for being important. Keep feeling the need for being first. And I want you to be first in love. I want you to be first in moral excellence. I want you to be first in generosity. That is what I want you to do. Jesus gave us a new norm of greatness. If you want to be important, wonderful. If you want to be recognized, wonderful. If you want to be great, wonderful. And every now and then I think about my own death and I think about my own funeral. And I don't think of it in a morbid sense. Every now and then I ask myself, what is it? I would want to say it. And I leave the word to you this morning. If any of you are around, when I have to meet my day, I don't want a long funeral. And if you get somebody to deliver the eulogy, tell them not to talk to me. Every now and then I wonder what I want them to say. Tell them not to mention that I have a Nobel Peace Prize. That isn't important. Tell them not to mention that I have three or four hundred other awards. That's not important. Tell them not to mention where I went to school. I'd like somebody to mention that day. And Martin Luther King Jr. tried to give his life serving others. I'd like for somebody to say that day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to love somebody. I want you to say that day that I tried to be right on the walk question. I want you to be able to say that day that I did try to feed the hungry. I want you to be able to say that day that I did try in my life to clothe those who were naked. I want you to say on that day that I did try in my life to visit those who were in prison. I want you to say that I tried to love and serve humanity. Yes, if you want to say that I was a drum major. Say that I was a drum major for justice. Say that I was a drum major for peace. I was a drum major for righteousness. And all of the other shallow things will not matter. This is Fozzie. Uh, I was just listening to your most recent episode, and uh, I just want to say that, I, you know, I consider myself a liberal, but when I listen to your show, uh, oftentimes there are things that I don't agree with, and I, I appreciate when that happens. I appreciate when it comes up, because it proves to myself uh, that 
I'm not just assigning myself this name and going with whatever I'm told by the Maddows or the newsrooms of, of the world. Uh, and one thing that I really disagreed with this week or that I questioned and I'd like to ask you about is the um, segment on uh, This Week in Blackness where there were all these concerns about your privacy in regard to cameras, more cameras being placed in larger cities like New York City, where I live. Cameras are not going to make us safer. They're just going to further erode our own civil liberties. That's all they're going to do. It just gives the state more power. And it puts us in a position where we have to consent because we want to be able to go to the grocery store and feed our kids and pay bills and do all the things that we have to do in our life. And the state is basically like, okay, you can do those things, but we have to watch every step that you take. And you have to agree to it because we said so because we're the state and we are armed. Um, and the, the, the hosts were basically saying that you're losing your privacy and the government is watching out for you and basically that the government is coming to get you. So how does that differ from the people who don't want to register their guns because they feel the same thing will happen? If I register my gun, I'll be on some list. And then when the government does decide to come take guns or target people who have guns, I'll be on that list, and that's why I refuse to register. Well, the same could be said for the people who don't want to be on camera because of their privacy. Well, uh, they don't want the government monitoring them. Well, what are you doing and what are you afraid of that the government is going to do? Isn't that just as irrational and just as um, much fear-mongering as the, the right? Uh, so I wanted to hear your opinion on that, and I, I'm interested to hear what you have to say. Uh, thanks for the great work, and as always, I'll keep listening. Talk to you soon. Hey, Jay. This is Matt Calling. I am a Democratic Socialist and also a Baptist pastor in rural North Carolina. So hopefully that busts a few stereotypes that some listeners might have. I was calling about the best and this week in blackness segment where they were talking about the smart cameras and they were speculating that the algorithms that detect a uh, package being left on the street could also be used to detect certain types of behaviors that could be used as probable cause and whether that was possible. This isn't about protection. This is about criminalization. It's about creating a population of people that we are okay with locking away or executing. I'm pretty sure that's absolutely possible. My dad works for a defense contractor and the unclassified portion of his job is to manage a program of security cameras in uh, Afghanistan at military bases and other U.S. facilities and these cameras can pick up whether a vehicle is moving too fast or a vehicle is moving too slow or someone's running towards the fence or uh, when the camera was looking at that location there was no one there and then when it pans back there's three people standing there and so it seems to me not a stretch at all that that could be programmed to see whether you have a unusual bulge in your pocket or that you have your hood up or who knows whatever that they uh, want those algorithms to look for and then that could be used to then be probable cause to execute a search warrant on your property. Unfortunately, I don't think that's out of the ordinary or unreasonable at all. You might imagine it's difficult to have my political beliefs and live in a rural area in the South, but one thing I can say is there are not many cameras here, at least I don't think so. Keep up the good work, Jay. Thanks a lot. 
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So I want to respond today to the first call I played from Fozzie, you know, asking about sort of the comparison between the camera issue and the gun sort of registration, uh, you know, gun control issue and, and the, the responses of different people to each of those scenarios. And I mean, I, I don't know if this is copying out on the answer, but I'm going to say that, that the comparison breaks down when, when attempting to make a parallel between the two in, in a lot of ways. And so I, in, rather than responding to that comparison, I'll, I'll say what I think is a better comparison, which actually fits in really, really well with today's episode. So I think the better comparison, rather than uh, the gun control issue, is is better made with the uh, drug, you know, the, the war on drugs issue. And the reason is that, uh, you know, with with this week in blackness, the way they were talking about uh, you know, what cameras could do to a society. I, I went, I re-listened to the, to the segment. I didn't hear them saying that, you know, this, you know, these cameras could be used to, you know, pick out individual people and sort of like persecute individuals in the same way that, you know, the, the, the fear about a gun registration list would allow the, the government to go at, you know, just like, well, we have a list of all the gun owners. Let's go after them. It, it wasn't really like that. They, they were, and, you know, that could be a different argument, but I didn't hear them saying that. I, I, I heard them saying that the cameras could be used to create a society of more criminals. And what I took that to mean was similar to the war on drugs. By instituting the policies saying that marijuana is illegal, we created a whole class of people who use marijuana recreationally and don't endanger society, you know, through their actions in any way, but we decided to make them criminals. And so then we put them in prison and, you know, it, it either costs the state a lot of money, just, you know, just paying for it ourselves, or we privatize the prisons and then, you know, private company makes a lot of money. They pay for their, uh, you know, lobbyists to make even stricter laws and so on. So that's what I took from their conversation about cameras was that it, it creates a system in which it's easier to put more people in prison in aggregate, not necessarily that they would then – I think where it gets to be a little conspiratorial is, well, they can track your personal movements and, and track you. And you know I think they could and that's another discussion. You know, but but the the main fear is that, uh, and actually, like I, I was just going through this in my head, I and I made up this idea. You know, if they're if they're tracking people's movements in the same way that you know when a city needs to raise more you know local tax dollars, they you know they put in red light cameras. If they start looking at what everyone's doing when they're walking around, what if they start putting in jaywalking cameras? And you know, if they can figure out who you are by your face. And then send tickets to people based on their jaywalking. You know, I mean, you're breaking the law. There's no expectation of privacy when you're in public. You know, that sounds constitutional to me. It just is really messed up and, you know, not something we should really want to have implemented. But, you know, it's a way to criminalize society a little bit more. And But I think why 
it's such a good fit for today's show is that, you know, in, in the last episode, we talked about the laws that were in place and how we sort of militarize our, our police and, you know, take away civil liberties and whatnot. But today's episode focused a lot more on the financial reasons, you know, the, the corporate backing for laws that go into place because it benefits people financially to do that. So first of all, of course, you have the corporations that would manufacture the cameras and then lobby the government to have those cameras installed everywhere. And then you'd have the prison corporations lobbying the government to pass laws to use those cameras in abusive ways so that we can put more people in prison so that they can make more money. And then we can convince society that this is a good idea because, hey, the, the, there are criminals on the street. We can catch more criminals and as if there's a finite number of criminals. And you know, the more criminals that are in jail, the fewer criminals there are on the street and the safer you are. But of course, you know, as uh, also what we learned today is that putting people in prison can actually make them more dangerous after they come out. You know, you put – sort of petty criminals in prison and it can actually radicalize them in, in a lot of ways, make them more dangerous. And, you know, and so unless you put people in prison for life, then you might actually make the situation worse and then it spirals downward from there. And I'm not a big conspiracy believer. I don't, I don't think that ideas like this come from conspiracies. I think that they come from a series of very logical, reasonable decisions being made by people who are generally trying to do the best for whatever situation they're in. So the people who are in the corporations are making decisions that would help the corporation. Politicians generally probably are, you know, trying to walk the balance between, you know, passing laws that make sense and, you know, getting those campaign donations and so on. But, you know, there's no mastermind idea out there necessarily saying we need to surveil everyone so we can put as many people in prison as possible so that we can have control over them because you know and then that's where it it gets really murky you know it it's much simpler to just explain well there's actually a lot of reasonable steps that got us to this place that no longer feels reasonable so i think that's where we're at right now and then the backlash comes and people start fighting back and trying to undo what's already been done so I think that's where we are. I would love to hear other people's comments on this. I think it's a really interesting topic. I would love to hear from anyone who has anything to say. The number again, 202-999-3991. And there are other voicemails uh, still waiting to be played on the topic. So I'm definitely going to get to those in the next episode and, and potentially beyond. So get your comments in, uh, you know, at your leisure. But that's going to do it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks especially to those who support the show, either by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That is absolutely how the program survives. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day. Thanks entirely to the members members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Fine, fine, smell black and white. You took apart a picture that wasn't right. Pitch burning on a shining sheet.